this evening for the ministry of the Word of God. And uh, remember the remainder of the week, the nights each night at 8 o'clock, uh, the ministry of the Word here in the hall. Now I'm informed that there is a, a question box at the back. Uh, and if you have any questions regarding any of the things that we're covering, uh, do feel free to put a question in that box and we'll do our best to to try and answer it. I might not have all the answers, but if I don't have an answer, well, we have a book that has all the answers and I'll try my best to find out uh, and get an answer over the, the remainder of the night. So if you do have a question, we all have questions, you know, because we're all, as we were thinking last night, we're all learning and it's a good way to learn is to ask questions. So do feel free to, uh, to, to put a question in the box. Now, this evening we're going to begin in Mark's Gospel in chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. Mark 14 and reading from verse 12. And the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover, his disciples said unto him, Where wilt thou that we go? And prepare that thou mayest eat the Passover. And he sendeth forth two of his disciples, and saith unto them, Go ye into the city, and there shall meet you a man bearing a pitcher of water. Follow him. And wheresoever he shall go in, say ye to the good man of the house, The master saith, Where is the guest chamber where I shall eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and prepared. There make ready for us. And his disciples went forth and came into the city and found as he had said unto them, and they made ready the Passover. And in the evening he cometh with the twelve. Now I look down to verse 22. And as they did eat, Jesus took bread and blessed and brake it and gave to them and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said unto them, This is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many. Now, let us turn to John's account of this upper room. Uh, John chapter 13. Reading from verse 3, John 13 and 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he was Come from God and went to God. He riseth from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. And after that he poureth water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. Then cometh he to Simon Peter, and Peter saith unto him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? Jesus answered and said unto him, What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. Peter saith unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. Simon Peter saith unto him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus saith to him, He that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit. And ye are clean, but not all. 
for he knew who should betray him, therefore said he, Ye are not all clean. So after he had washed their feet and had taken his garments and was set down again, he said unto them, Know ye what I have done to you? Ye call me Master and Lord, and ye say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If ye know these things, happy are ye if you do them. Uh, just notice down to verse 34, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another, as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye love one another. Chapter 15, verse 3. Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Now a further reading in Acts. Acts and chapter 20. Acts and chapter 20. Verse 6, And we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and came unto them to Troas in five days, where we abode seven days. And upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them, ready to depart uh, on the morrow, and continued his speech until midnight. And there sat in a window a certain young man named Eutychus, being fallen into a deep sleep, and as Paul was long preaching, he sunk down with sleep and fell down from the third loft and was taken up dead. And Paul went down and fell on him and embracing him said, Trouble not yourselves, for his life is in him. When he therefore was come up again and had broken bread and eaten and talked a long while, even till break of day, so he departed. And they brought the young man alive and were not a little comforted. And we know that God will... Uh, bless his word. Now, we sought last night to lay a foundation in the area of further education with regard to the local assembly and church truth. And to do that, we examined five words. We thought of grammar basics, five foundational words that really are essential for everyone to know who wants an appreciation of what the Bible teaches about uh, the church. And we thought, first of all, of Christ. It all begins with Christ. And in that, we thought of the fact that we're a saved people. Then we thought as well, not only of Christ, but the importance of the word church, ecclesia. And in that, we are a separated people, a called out company called out of the world every aspect of the world a unique company called out and gathered together locally geographically then we thought of doctrine an educated people and our bible is before us and it has the syllabus the curriculum as far as teaching is concerned when it comes to the ecclesia and of course the foundational principle that we thought of was that Christ is the foundation. And moving from that doctrine comes fellowship. That was a fourth word that we thought of. And in that, we are a partnered people 
like those men in the fishing boat business, we're partners. And we're participating because we have something in common, something great. And therefore, we thought a little of fellowship. And finally, then the word received. And we learned that when we are saved, we are added to the body of Christ automatically. But we are received into a local assembly by the assembly, and also we receive the assembly. And we read a number of verses, Acts 15, how that Paul, when he went up to Jerusalem, he was received of the church and the apostles. And therefore, that word is very, very important. So that was grammar basics, laying a foundation. And those words will pop up again throughout the week, Lord willing, in the ministry. And I trust that we've defined the terms. Now, this evening... We want to think of geographical boundaries and finding the right place. And to do that, I want to take us into two upper rooms. And I want to think of the first upper room in Jerusalem. And in doing that, to think of the assembly in embryo form. And then to think of the upper room in Troas. And in that, we'll think of the assembly by example. In one, we're going to think really of finding the right place, how the disciples found that place, that lovely upper room. And in Troas, we're going to be putting emphasis on following the right pattern. A pattern that was established in the upper room in Jerusalem is now seen clearly in practice in the upper room in Troas, a number of years later. Now, I think we have scripture for doing just what I'm about to do, and that is to go back into this upper room in Jerusalem. It's a room that we all love to spend time in, and every young believer should spend time in this upper room. Because, brethren and sisters, every Lord's Day that we sit down to break the bread and to be a partaker of the cup, what are we doing? We're really in thought just ascending that staircase that the disciples went up and taking our seat in that upper room and listening to that voice. 2,000 years later, the voice of the upper room, that's my first point just as we think of the upper room and to think of the value of the upper room and to think as we come to it that still we can hear that voice of the Lord Jesus. This do in remembrance of me. And so it was that Paul, in 1 Corinthians 11, as he introduces us to the teaching with regard to the Lord's Supper, he says, that which was delivered unto me, what was it? It was that which I received, how that the Lord, the same night in which he was being betrayed, took bread. And so he takes us right back to the night in which he was being betrayed, the Lord Jesus Christ, in the upper room. He took the bread and he took the cup. Now, with that in mind, I want us to think just of this lovely portion in Mark's gospel, first of all. And we're going to write over this, the value of the upper room. And really, what is the value of the upper room? Was it its location as far as a property in Jerusalem is concerned? 
We don't really know where it was. If you go there today, they'll take you to a room that they think might have been the upper room. But that's not the point. The value in the upper room was just this, that Christ was in their midst. He was there. And you see, very simply, that's what we're going to be emphasizing over and over again uh, this week with regard to the local assembly. What is the value of it? How do we value it? It is, brethren and sisters, that he is in our midst. I wonder, did you think, just as you got ready for the meeting tonight, probably in a hurry, tired maybe coming in from work, the pressures of a day behind you, and we appreciate everybody who is here, did you ever think that you weren't just getting ready to come to the meeting, you were, you were coming to have him in your midst? Hmm? That's a big thought, isn't it? We were gathering unto his name this evening, and he is in our midst. And that's why I judge that we know we're in the right place. Brother was reminding us that we've chosen to be in the best place this evening, and we have, not because of the person on the platform a thousand times no, but because we're gathering unto his name, and he promises that where two or three are gathered unto my name, and having been gathered unto my name, there am I in the midst of them. Now, how were they going to find their way to this place? Because an important question is asked. The disciples say to the Lord Jesus, Where wilt thou that we go? Where will we go? I wonder, have you ever asked that question? A lot of people ask that just when they get saved. Where am I going to go? What church am I going to go to? And as they look round the massive confusion in our world today, it's a good question. Where will I go? Well, it's very simple as you look at the narrative as to where they would go and how they would find the right place. Number one. They would follow the direction of the word of God. And number two, having followed the direction of the word of God, they would be led to this man with a pitcher of water upon his head, a very unusual thing in Jerusalem, for it was normally the women who were able to miraculously balance that, wo that water on top of their head. Here's a man. Yes, but that's what the Lord said you would find. And following the man... And the direction of the word of God from the Son of God, they would find the place. And I love what it says. His disciples came, went forth and came into the city and found as he had said unto them. You say, what church will I go to? What is the right place? Where shall I choose? Listen. The answer to that question is this. You don't need to choose. God has already made the choice. It's the place where he has chosen to put his name. Oh, there were lots of other places in Jerusalem that the disciples could have decided to go. Were it left to their own intuition, were it left to what they thought 
that the Lord meant, were it left to what they thought would be better. But they just with faith obeyed his word. And they found that they were led to the right place. Now you would know that that man with the pitcher of water upon his head, when we think of water in the scripture, just like oil, it often points to the Holy Spirit. I think I mentioned on Lord's Day when it comes to unity and the oil that flowed down Aaron's beard, that's a pointer to the Holy Spirit. David was anointed with oil and the Spirit of God was upon him. When we think of water, in various formats it speaks of different things. So we'll think later of water that's used for washing. And when water in Scripture is used for washing and cleansing, we're thinking of water and the Word of God. But when we're thinking of water that has been flowing and that is used for drinking and for water, we're thinking of the Spirit of God. Out of his belly, the Lord Jesus would say, shall flow rivers of living water. This he spake concerning the Spirit. And so here is a beautiful picture of, in this man, the Holy Spirit's guidance. And so you put the guidance of the Holy Spirit with the Word of God, and the one thing is this, they're always in agreement. Because the Lord Jesus teaches in this upper room. He says here in John chapter 14, he says, when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. Now here's something. I hope you all agree with this. According to the word of God, from what I can see, a person who gets saved, who is baptized, and who is genuinely before God asking, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Where will you have me to go? I believe that that person, if they follow the guidance of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, will be led to the Ecclesia. The place of his name. Now there only is one in Scripture. If you can show me more after the meeting, do show me. I can only find one Ecclesia. That is one thing in many places. Not many things in one place. The scripturally gathered ecclesia, gathered unto his name, it is impossible for the Holy Spirit to guide a person to anything other than the assembly. However, you say to me immediately, well now Jonathan, the thing is, how would I know that it's the right place? Well, how did they know that it was the right place? In these simple and beautiful words, they found that large upper room fully furnished and they found it just as he said. In other words, what they found was just as they found and was just as according to his word. And it's still the same today, brethren and sisters. Now let me make a point that's very important. Listen, as far as the assembly is concerned, it will never be perfect as long as I'm in it. As far as the people are concerned, it will never be perfect because we're all full of failures. Wherever we are, there'll always be failure. But as far as the pattern is concerned, it is perfect. 
And if there's any failure, you can be sure it is always with us, never with the word of God. So as you look about today at the confusion and at the division, the one thing that we can be absolutely sure of is this. That is not according to the will of God or according to the word of God. No. So what you and I are asked to do is not to look at the confusion and decide what we should choose. No, God wants us to look at his word and to see what he has chosen and to see that what we find is according to his word. Because that has always been God's ruling principle as far as the place where he dwells. Whether it be in the Garden of Eden where he dwelt and he had communion and fellowship with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. Or whether it be in the tabernacle where he dwelt amongst his people, there only was ever one tabernacle. Whether it be the temple, there was just the one up in Jerusalem. And when there was something, when there was another altar appeared, that was when the nation was divided. But as we thought last night, the local assembly, distinct from Israel, called out from the world, the emphasis is not on buildings, but it is on a scripturally gathered People of God gathered unto his name, just as he said, according to the principles of the word of God. I remember my own father talking to me about how he, he found the assembly. He wasn't brought up in a Christian home. I did have that privilege, though I rebelled against it. But he didn't. And got saved. Met my mother. They were both saved, baptized, and they began to look to see where they should go. It so happened according to, I do believe, the guidance of the Holy Spirit. They ended up living next door to a godly couple who one night said to my father, that lady, you're believers, where do you go? He said, we're just looking really for, for a place. Looking, just looking. She said, have you ever been to a breaking of bread? He said, no. She says, you'll come with us on Lord's Day morning. This is what my father said to me. He said, you know, I was only in that place five minutes and I knew it was the place. Never been anywhere else. Why? Because he found it just as he said. If you got that. In other words, as he observed the believers breaking bread, he saw that's what was in his Bible. Isn't it wonderful? To come on a Lord's Day morning, brethren and sisters, never let us get used to it. To hear the voice from the upper room. The value of the upper room is just that he is there, for he came and he sat down with the disciples. Oh, they had him in their presence. That's what made that room so precious. And mind you, I used to think that the upper room was, was this tranquil sort of a place. But as you examine scripture, you realize that these disciples were coming into it after having arguments about who would be the greatest in the kingdom. And there was a lot of tension and Judas was there as well. And I tell you, it was a place that was charged. But what was going to bring the value to this place was just that Christ was in the midst. As you know, an assembly is not a place that is just always peaceful and tranquil. There will be difficulties, there will be tensions, and there will be problems because you and I are there. It can't be anything else. But the fact of the matter is, Christ in the midst 
is what is of value. Do you believe that he's in our midst tonight? I believe it with all my heart. That if the cloak of invisibility were taken back, he is there. He is present with us. Now maybe a young person asks, well, well, how could that be? Sure, the Lord Jesus Christ is bodily in heaven. And you're right, he is. And that's precious. But as you read your Bible, you will discover that where God dwells with his people, there are very special manifestations of his presence. And I don't have time to stay with it tonight, but we know that God is omnipresent. That is one of the characteristics and attributes of deity. He is in all places at all times. But then there are very uh, peculiar and special manifestations of his presence that his people enjoy fellowship with God. So, of course, Adam and Eve enjoyed that because you remember it says that Cain had to go out from, he went out from the presence of the Lord. And we know that as far as Israel was concerned, they enjoyed the Shekinah presence, the Shekinah glory of God. Shekinah really is the Hebrew word that means dwelling presence of God in their midst in a very real way. And we could go on through scripture. But when we come to the local church, there is a very special spiritual manifestation of Christ in the midst of a people who gather unto his name. But we cannot claim that presence if we're not gathering unto his name and own his authority. And therefore that is very precious that as we gather. Now, the one thing I want to point out is just this. If we were to turn to Acts chapter 11, we would come to a scripture there where uh, Paul was with the, the, the saints in Jerusalem. And it says there, in fact, I'll just turn to it just to read the verse because this is a very important uh, aspect of assembly truth. And it says this, verse 25, Then departed Barnabas to Tarsus for to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him unto Antioch. And it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people. Then were the disciples called Christians first in Antioch. Now, what that is telling me is this. As they came, it says that they assembled, a whole year they assembled themselves with the church. Now, clearly that doesn't mean that the meeting lasted a year. They weren't there for a whole year, gathered at one time. But what it does show is this. Though there were times when they were physically gathered for the preaching and the teaching of God's word, as far as the assembly positionally was concerned, it was always and remained gathered. Have you got that? And that is really the deeper truth of Matthew 18 and 20, that where two or three, having been gathered and continue to gather together unto my name, there am I in the midst of them. That simply means this, dear brother, when you're in university tomorrow morning, when you're in the workplace, when you're in the school, dear sister, when you're at home, you're still as much a member of this assembly as you are when you're gathered together tonight. Mind you, that, that brings with it a great weight of responsibility. It's not just that when we're physically gathered together, we're a member of the assembly. No, that's why there's no such thing as occasional fellowship as we're going to see further on. 
But I just make that distinction that we know a very special manifestation of Christ when we are physically gathered together for the assembly gatherings. But when we disperse and go away in our cars, that assembly still exists just as those golden lampstands in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, they were there with Christ in the midst. And yet, it was a warning to Ephesus that the lampstand could be removed. And so we have it in Mark, the value of the upper room. But what about this voice from the upper room? Because not only is it an upper room, but it's actually a dining room. They're going to learn something about what they should eat. You know, this brings before us the great truth of the Lord's Supper. Maybe you've never thought of it before, but it's the, only, it's the only gathering of the assembly where we're actually told what to eat. It's very important. For as oft as you eat this bread and drink this cup. And so we're thinking not so much now of where we go, but what we do. The Lord's Supper. I fear in some circles today, it is becoming the lost supper. Very sad if you go onto a website of a company of believers professing to be an ecclesia, but you cannot find any reference to the Lord's Supper. That would tell me that they have lost sight and lost ear of the voice of the upper room. The Lord's Supper, the great privilege, the highest privilege that any believer has when it comes to the Lord's table of partaking of that which the Lord ordained because its origin is right here in what he said. Its order is in what he did. And its objective is that we might remember him. So as we think of the value of the upper room, it's Christ in our midst. As we think of this voice from the upper room, we're thinking of Christ in our memory. This do in remembrance of me. Now what did he do? He took the bread, notice the order, and he blessed it and break it and he gave to them. He also took the cup and he had given thanks. I want you to notice just the distinction in those two words. He blessed and break it and he gave thanks when it comes to the cup. Now that's still the order that we practice. And may God preserve the simplicity of what he brought and what originated in that upper room so that we don't lose the focus of what we call the morning meeting. I prefer to call it the Lord's Supper or the breaking of bread because there's just the danger that we could just think that the bread and the cup are sort of the add-on. But let us remember that is the focus of why we gather. That is the objective of why we come. And so, as brother after brother gets up on his feet and rises to give thanks, never think that it's in some way secondary to give thanks for the bread and the cup. But equally, Neither think that it's something that you just tag on to the end of your thanksgiving. No, I would say just for young brethren taking part maybe for the first time, it's a good thing just to make clear. Now, we're not setting hard and fast rules, but just to make sure and make clear 
for those who are observing and those in the company that when you're going to give thanks for the bread, this is what I'm going to do. And when you're going to give thanks for the cup, make it clear that that's what you're giving thanks for. Because it's an, it's an enormous privilege to do as the Lord did. And to give thanks for the bread, what does it speak of? Of his body. And so we will be thinking of that body that was broken. And as we think of the cup, we will in our thanksgiving be thinking and bringing the company to bear upon the precious blood of Christ as we did last Lord's Day. Precious to think of his blood. Mind you, there's sometimes the blood would hardly get a mention. But we said last night, brethren and sisters, there could be no church if it were not for the fact that Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. And so I would say never be afraid at the Lord's table to give God thanks not only for his son, but give God thanks for your salvation. For Luke gives us this rendering. He says, this is my body which is given for you. This is my blood which is shed for you. And how thankful we should be that he ever shed his precious blood for sinners like us. And therefore, the order. Now, note those two words, blessed. What does that mean? That really is the word it really means uh, to speak well of. It's the Greek word eulogio. And the word thanks is a Greek word eucharisto, and that means to show gratitude to. Now that forms really the basis of what we do on a Lord's Day morning when we rise to our feet audibly to give thanks or the sisters silently who give thanks and show their gratitude in their offering of praise. And I say both equally valuable to the praise that ascends to God and the right hand of God. Eulogio, to speak well. Not to speak well of ourselves. We're not here to eulogize ourselves and to say of anything that we have done. But we're there just to speak well of God's Son. And so through the week, dear brother and dear sister, you and I will be trying to gather some little fresh appreciation of Christ so that we can offer it. To him on a Lord's day. It's not by the way that we're going to be telling him anything new about his son. He knows all there is to know about his son. The one who he opened the heavens and said. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. But he just loves to hear our appreciation of him. And then gratitude and thanksgiving. We should be a thankful people. You see remember we said last night. That when we come to 1 Corinthians 10, the order is reversed. It's the cup first, and we mentioned that was the foundation of fellowship. The precious blood of Christ. And then the bread, the framework of fellowship. Bringing us into that unity of the body of which we're part of. But there's a warning in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. That we are not seated at tables of demons. Something that is incompatible with coming to the Lord's table. And we learn in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that one of the great truths surrounding the Lord's table is this, that we are partakers and that the Lord's Supper, 1 Corinthians 11, is one I judge of the highest privileges of being a partaker from the Lord's table. Now understand this, I used to think as a young boy that the Lord's table was the wooden table which he set the bread and the cup on. Now that's not the Lord's table, that's just a wooden table for convenience. 
You must remember that God, the Lord Jesus Christ, did not leave us uh, three different symbols, the bread and the cup and a wooden table. No, he left us the bread and the cup. No, the Lord's table is a spiritual table. You see, there's another distinction between what is in Israel and what is in the church. The table of showbread with the bread of his presence. But this is not a physical, it's a spiritual table that every believer should be a partaker of. But I judge according to 1 Corinthians 10, in a local company, you cannot fully partake from the Lord's table if you're not a partaker in the Lord's Supper. Now that means that there's nowhere in Scripture, and here's just a little trend that I would see sometimes coming in, There is nowhere in Scripture where I have authority if I am part of a local assembly when the bread comes along to let it pass by because I don't think I should be taking that somewhere. No, No. 1 Corinthians 11 says, Let a man or a woman so examine himself and come and be a partaker. And so the order is very clear. And we should follow it with great pleasure. The voice from the upper room. I want to think just for a moment of the vesture of the upper room. John takes us to this beautiful section in John 13 of what has been referred to as the high priestly ministry of the Lord Jesus or the upper room ministry. But, you know, there's one thing about these chapters from chapter 13 to 17. It's just a, it's just a big classroom. He's going away. And he wants to teach the disciples something and many important things that they must know as he is gone and until he comes back. must have been a a sad thing for them to think that they were going to lose this one whom they had followed and whom they had thought so much of. But in that even the Lord Jesus is teaching us a principle and that is that truth must be passed on and the pattern must be passed on. And so we have in this upper room some very important things. And I just want us to notice just a couple of them. And it's this. I want us to see the pattern of lowliness. What is going to govern our relationships in the local assembly where he is present? It's going to just be following his example. As he sits with them and rises from supper and he takes a towel And he lays aside his garments, takes a towel and girds himself, and he takes a basin and he pours water. Maybe it was the water from the pitcher on the man's head, I'm not sure. But he pours water in the basin and he begins to wash the disciples' feet. What lowliness, brethren and sisters. What humility. Isn't that what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 2? with lowliness of mind, esteeming the other better than themselves. And then he goes on to tell us about that beautiful passage, let this mind be also in you, which was in Christ Jesus. Oh, the humility of the Lord in that servitude, washing the disciples' feet. Why did he do it? Of course he did it simply, first of all, to wash the dirt off their feet for cleansing. And of course, he would teach Peter the deeper meaning of cleansing. I'm not going to go into that tonight. But what I want to get over is this. He was doing what he did as an example, as every great teacher should do 
in the assembly to be an example unto those that were around him, an example of lowliness, an example of love, so that even those who were on the outside would know that they were disciples by their love for one another. I wonder what the world thinks as they look at us, brethren and sisters. Do they see the love that we have one for another? Do they see that lowliness of mind? Because the danger is that we could just trample on one another's feet. But when we look at Christ, he washed the disciple. And you know what I think as well? If we look at the chronology, he even washed Judas's feet. Hmm? Would you have washed Judas's feet? Judas, the one who's going to betray him, the traitor. Ah, but says Paul, it was in the night in which he was being betrayed. Even as he was going to be betrayed, he took that basin of water. And tenderly with those perfect hands, those hands that were going to be pierced with nails, he washed the disciples' feet. You see, he was going to teach them something not only about lowliness of mind, not only of love, but a very important assembly truth, and that is lordship. Listen to what he says just further down. He says, He said unto them in verse number 12, Know ye what I have done to you. Ye call me Master and Lord, and ye say, Well, for so I am. And then he says, If I then your Lord and Master have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Notice the order in the change of names there. He says, Ye call me Master and Lord. He says, that's right. But he says, if I then, your Master and Lord, no, your Lord and Master. You see, what he's teaching is this. If you're going to be learners from me as teacher, you must first approach me and acknowledge me as Lord. Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Now teach me. Not teach me as master, and then I'll decide to do it whether I like it or not. You see, that's the big difficulty with some of us here. As we think of assembly truth, and as we think of what we are supposed to do, we come to the word of God with the attitude, well, I learn, and then if I like it, I'll do it. Instead of first coming with the attitude, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Whatever it is you want me to do, I'll do it. Then he's able to teach us. That's how he teaches. And that's how we should be taught. Oh, that God would impress it upon us tonight. You know, if you get nothing else out of this meeting, if you go home tonight and get down by your bedside and just say afresh, Lord, what will you have me to do? Be well worthwhile. Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Young people, have you been there recently? You say, well, I would like to do something for the Lord of a couple of months in the summer, and that's good, and you do something for the Lord. But there's a world of difference from saying, Lord, I want to do something for you, and Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? You see, sometimes we're afraid to ask that because of what he might ask us to do, eh? Is it all for him? Brethren and sisters tonight, are you holding a little bit back for yourself? He can't teach you. If you're holding back 5%, there's going to be 5% that he'll never teach you. He wants it all. Not interested in your money. Not interested in anything but you. That's the truth of Romans 12. We'll maybe come to it on another night. Oh Lord, teach me. 
Master, speak, thy servant heareth. And so he teaches them of lowliness, of love, and of lordship. The assembly in embryo form, the value of the upper room, Christ in their midst, the voice from the upper room, Christ in their memory, and the vesture of the upper room, Christ as their master. But you say, well, how does this all work out? And so we come to Acts and chapter 20. For now we see in this assembly in Troas, what was instituted in the upper room worked out in example. And how is that going to be the case? Well, we come to an assembly, a local assembly, and I want to just point out three things in this last 15 minutes. I want to think of an assembly planted according to the pattern. Then we'll think of a believer who's planning according to the pattern. And then a young man who's cared for according to the pattern. We see now the pattern in operation. And what is it? An assembly that has been planted. How was it planted? Well, as you look at Troas and you look through your Bible, you will see that Troas was a place that Paul visited on a number of occasions. In fact, if you were to go back to chapter 16, you would learn there in verse 6, when they had gone throughout Phrygia and the region of Galatia and were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia, after they were come to Mysia, they aside to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit suffered them not. And they, passing by Messiah, came to Troas. Now that's very interesting. That shows the guidance of the Holy Spirit in the movements of the Apostle Paul. He attempted to go to Asia to preach the gospel. The Spirit of God said no. He then uh, decided to go Bithynia, to go north. Spirit of God said no. And he comes to Troas. And 2 Corinthians and chapter 2 tells us that he preached the gospel at Troas. A door was opened even before he went to Macedonia. Because as you follow Acts chapter 16 down, you get the Macedonian call. A vision appeared to Paul in the night. There stood a man of Macedonia and prayed him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. But at Troas he preached the gospel. And so, I judge, an assembly was formed. How was it formed? By a group of people coming and doing a church plant? No. By the gospel being preached. That's how every assembly is formed. Didn't we learn that last night? The ecclesia, a called out company. Who does the calling? God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the preaching of the gospel, people are saved. Added to the church which is his body, baptized and received and gathered together unto his name in a local testimony. Brethren and sisters, there wouldn't be one of us gathered together in this assembly had it not been for the preaching of the gospel. Had it not been for somebody witnessing to us at work? Had it not been for that gospel tract that was given by a sister with her courage, witnessing to a friend? And you could go round this hall and look at all the testimonies and all the experiences, and the one thing they would have in common is this. Everyone was saved through putting their faith in Christ, the Lord Jesus, acknowledging their sin, and through the glorious gospel, People are saved. 
and gathered and assemblies are formed. You know, that's still God's way of establishing testimony. I wonder, are we interested in seeing assemblies established? I wonder, have we lost the zeal of going out with the gospel to see souls saved? Yes, but to see them baptized and to see assemblies established. Has God lost any of his power? Has the gospel lost its power? You see, the fact of the matter is this. Sometimes I think that we think the gospel is not working anymore because people don't come in. Because people don't come in, that doesn't mean the gospel's not working. Usually that's a sign that we're not working. Now, I know it's not easy to to, to get people in with the gospel. And the reality is that if you look at the population of, of, say, New York, what is it we decided? Eight and a half million population. Do you know, brethren and sisters, the reality is this. That 99.9% of those 8 million will never, ever sit in a gospel hall like this and hear the gospel. So what are we going to do? Are they just going to perish with no one to tell them? We're going to do what Christ instructed us to do. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Think of the millions around us, brethren and sisters. And I know you're making a brave effort to reach them. Wonderful to see the ESL class in operation, trying to reach everyone with the gospel. May God continue to help us to keep at the gospel and preaching the gospel because it's the only hope of men and women and boys and girls. To reach them with Christ, how shall they hear without a preacher? And so it is that this assembly at Troas was formed by the pattern. What about a believer planning according to the pattern? And so it is that Paul is going to now visit Troas. Where is he coming from? Well, it tells us that he sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread and came unto them to Troas. Notice five days and then he abode seven. Now, quite simply, that means he arrived on the Monday. Why is he going to stay seven days? going to stay seven days so that he can break bread on the first day of the week. You see the pattern now. You see the priority of a believer wanting to stay in a local assembly, to have fellowship with the believers, yes, but primarily to be there to remember the Lord. Why? Because the Apostle Paul could hear very clearly the voice from the upper room, this do in remembrance of me. The Apostle Paul knew the wonder of the Lord's presence on the first day of the week. Why is it the first day of the week? Why not the Sabbath? Because you and I know that it's on the first day of the week the Lord Jesus rose from the dead. And this has now obviously become the established pattern of the first century church, that on the first day of the week, They remember the Lord. Now, we're not told at what time they remembered the Lord. We don't have any rules and regulations as whether it's half ten or half eleven or even half six in the evening. Possibly it was here. But the fact is, he waited until it was the first day of the week to break bread. You'll notice he didn't break bread on the boat on the way from Philippi. Nowhere do I find in my Bible any authority for you and I 
to have the Lord's Supper or the breaking of bread separated from the fellowship of an ecclesia. A called out company of believers gathered together that continue to gather together in time, a lampstand, and then you and I on our little cruise on holiday buy a baguette and a bottle of Ribena and say we remember the Lord. That's not in the Bible. Not there. No, here's a scripture for it. He could have remembered the Lord on the way from Philippi. Sure, we'll not have to wait at Troas. It'll be just convenient. And so in 2020, in a world of convenience, convenience food, convenience everything, you couldn't hardly stop for a cup of coffee now. It has to be a drive-through, doesn't it? We don't have time to sit and enjoy a cup of coffee. It has to be convenience. But you know, there's no such thing as convenience Christianity. It doesn't exist. Mind you, we could all get caught up in it. We're also under pressure, brethren and sisters. And, but he chose the place where he would break bread before he set sail. Just a little reminder, young people, when you're going on holiday, just think of, of the first day of the week, won't you? And just think of the privilege. Wouldn't it be sad just to, just to put your ear plugs in of your iPod and just drown out that voice from 2,000 years ago with nail pierced hands and feet? This is my body which is given for you. This is my blood which is shed for you. The first day of the week to sit down and remember the Lord who died for you. And so he gives priority to it and he gathers. And there he breaks bread, a special day, the first of the week. You'll notice that it says this, very obvious, just point it out. It says there were many lights in the upper chamber where they were gathered together. Now I just throw that out as a word study. Just follow that phrase, gathered together, throughout the epistles, and you will see very clearly the great truth of the gathering together, the gathering together, the local assembly in its geographical location and the permanence of it, so that there is no thought in Scripture at all for occasional fellowship and for you and I to decide just to set up some sort of our own uh, table. Well, lastly, a believer planning according to the pattern. But thirdly, a young man who was cared for according to the pattern. What an interesting young man Eutychus is. And of course, just as you're yawning and maybe feeling a little bit sleepy now, you could say, well, here's a scripture to have a snooze in the meeting. I'm glad to see no one yet has just fallen into the position of Eutychus. What's the lesson you say from Eutychus? This young man, a certain young man, well, you might say, well, you don't sit on a third-story window and sleep. That's the lesson. Otherwise, you'll fall out like he did. Well, that's true. We have to be sensible. But I think there's maybe just a little more to Eutychus than meets the eye. The first thing I want to say is this. The great value of young people in the local assembly can I speak to those who are older this evening? And I don't know where I fit, really. I'm too old-fashioned to be called young, likely. But I don't like being think of, of being old. But anyhow, the fact is this. Can I just speak to those who are older? You know, I hope we value the young people. 
As I come to an assembly like this and I see the vast number of young people and the potential for God, I tell you there's assemblies and they would long for even the half of them. I trust that you value them because Scripture instructs us to value our young people. And I trust as I speak to you young people that you value the older. Says Paul to Timothy, let no man despise thy youth. We've thought of the voice of the upper room. What about the voice of youth amongst us? You know youth has a powerful voice. And it can be used with great effect and with great power. But says Paul, remember not only the voice of youth, but the virtue of it. Be thou an example in word and deed and in charity. In other words, young people, you have a great value and an important part to play. Older folk must pass on the pattern to younger people. Now that's vital. If we go through scripture, we can see where that took place. Whether it's a Moses handing over to a Joshua. Whether it's an Elisha taking up the mantle of Elijah. Whether it's a David passing on the pattern to his son Solomon. Or whether it's a Paul passing on to Timothy. It must be passed on to the young people. Don't assume that they know. Must be passed on. Otherwise, if the Lord be not come and an older generation pass away, what have we left our young people with? Again, can I speak tenderly to older saints here? Are you passing on the truth? Or are you just hanging on? May God give us help to pass on. Those of us who are in our 40s, passing on to those who are in their 30s. Those in the 30s, do you realize that there's a generation in their 20s who are looking at you as an example? Those who are in their 20s, do you realize that there are those in their teens and they are looking to you, to what you do, to where you go, to the meetings that you attend, to the truth that you hold to. We are all making an impression on the generation coming behind. Those in their 70s, those looking in their 60s, how are they going to retire? What are they going to do with their time? Are they going to put their feet up and say, I've arrived? How are we passing on the truth, brethren and sisters? It's for real. And I tell you, one of the things I just like about Eutychus is this. He was there. He was there. You say he was sleepy and tired and he fell out a window. Well, maybe he did, but we don't know what he had had to do all day and the work and the job that he had had to maybe work all night. But the fact of the matter was he was there. Now, let me speak to young people just for a moment. Listen, whatever you do in life, and whatever you might think of the assembly, and whatever you might think of the older people, and how old-fashioned they might be, can I plead with you, just try and be there. Try and be there. You might not have studied for the Bible reading, but come to it. Be there. Because I can look back on my own experience, and I can vouch for this a hundred times over. Times when I come to the assembly, as cold as ice, but I tell you I left just being warm. I left just being encouraged. I left just being put on the straight and narrow because I was there. You will never lose out for being there. And Eutychus would never forget that night. You say, well, what have you got to say about the fact that he fell out a window and he died? Well, it's just this. You know, young people fall. 
and they need picked up. Young people fall. Older saints need to pick them up, set them on their feet. What a fall it was from the third story. Maybe I'm talking to a young person tonight and just this week you've had a fall. You say, how did the assembly there gather? How did they know that Eutychus had had a fall? He was there one moment and gone the next. It will be probably very evident that a young person has had some sort of a fall or difficulty when they start dropping off in their attendance. Don't leave them, overseers. They might not like it, but you go after them and you try to pick them up. Because though Paul preached to midnight, and I don't know whether it was his sermon put the people to sleep, sometimes that is the case. It's not the fault of the people being tired. It's the preacher that puts the people to sleep. But that might be the case as it was. But the thing that I love about Paul is this. It says he went down. Just as the Lord Jesus washed the disciples' feet, Paul got off the platform if there was one in that third story house and he went down to where Eutychus was and like Elisha he spread himself. And I know a miracle took place and Eutychus was saved in a miraculous way. But the principle still abides. Paul was prepared to go down. He was prepared to pick the young man up. Young people need picked up. They will have many to fall. I tell you, the world in which young people are living today is a cruel, cruel world. It's a world that can just pull them down in a second. And they're left wondering where they are in their Christian testimony. They're wondering, am I useless for the assembly? You know, can I say tonight, there was many a time I got up to give thanks in the breaking of bread. And I felt I made such a hash of it. And I felt I was so unworthy to give thanks. I sat down, I vowed it would never get up on my feet again. But for an older sister who came along afterwards and encouraged me, or a couple of weeks later after I had been silent said, we haven't heard you for a while, we would love to hear you. Just picking you up, just setting you on your feet, just getting you going again, encouragers. That's what we need amongst God's people. There's enough to knock us down. There's enough to knock us over without us knocking young people over. But what we need to do is pick them up. And you notice he spent time with them. And you'll notice that he gave him bread. You see, it's one thing having the breaking of bread and to be there and to do everything right. But if you have no love for the people to give them a bit of bread, you see... He was able to take bread. Just maybe that young person to go out and have a coffee with them. Just to have a cup of tea with them. Just to spend that time with them. Yes, the breaking of bread, important. But just that care. And that care that was shown. And it says that they were greatly comforted. And that just reminds me that assemblies will have trouble. Assemblies will have sorrow. Assemblies will have difficulty, but God has made provision in Christ through his word and through the Holy Spirit. Whether it's the assembly in embryo, 
Let us never forget that wonderful voice, this do in remembrance of me. And may we have strength to see the pattern established, the assembly by example and in practice, as we have in Troas, even until the Lord's return. May God bless his word and shall we pray.